The gates of hell are open night and day, smooth the descent, and easy is the way. But to return and view the cheerful skies, in this the task in mighty labor lies. From the Aeneid of Virgil. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. And welcome back to the Magnus Podcast with Larissa Bianco. As always, I'm John Johnson. Hello, Larissa. How you doing? Hi, John. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. As always, thanks for making me do this. Oh, it's one, one of the favorite parts of my week. And these podcasts... They've been getting more and more downloads. Uh, I, I know like last quarter we passed 30,000 and I know it's on the upswing thanks to your great work. So I wanted to publicly acknowledge that Larissa Bianco, the one who makes this happen for your listening pleasure and, and does a great job at many other things. I was just having another discussion with a, I can't say yet, but a very huge potential collaborator Nobody can believe that we do what we do with three part-time staff. Nobody believes it. We serve 800 students, do all these courses, do all these, do, you know, publishing a book. And they're like, you do that with three part-time staff. I'm like, yep, because we have the best staff in the world. So you're, you make that happen. Thank you, Larissa, for all you do. And uh, our guest today, very exciting somehow he has the same last name as you coincidence you can tell me but dr matt bianco hello matt if i could if i may call you matt can i call you matt absolutely great awesome larissa what is exactly the relationship between why do you have the same last name as this guy he's my father-in-law wow you really are the queen pedigree liberal arts princess heiress apparent to the entire western tradition because your father-in-law is the coo of the cersei institute and your father well this is really getting getting strange here your father is the founder andrew kern of the cersei institute so you were once a kern that's correct still am Wow, we need like we need a key person life insurance policy for you because if you go, the entire Occidental tradition goes with you. We should. Yeah, that's, that's really nicely put. I yeah, tried to get Thirsty to pay for mine and Alex's wedding. Matt wouldn't go for it. Man, that, you know what's the cost of preserving the West, right? I mean, a wedding, right? Okay. So it's true. Awesome. If you put it in those terms, it might have exactly. Happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you're working for us and not them, right, Larissa? <laughs> that's right. Okay, so we were talking about Cersei Institute on a taping a couple weeks ago, behind your back, all positive, and then we thought, well, we should actually get somebody from Cersei on the show because I think in a lot of ways our audiences overlap. Our brand is to really support anybody doing good work in the great books tradition. And we don't view ourselves as having competitors. Maybe, maybe that's that's foolish on our part, but I think you guys are doing work that really complements ours. I know many of our fellows 
also appreciate your work. So for those who don't know about the Searcy Institute, Matt, could you just give us a rundown of the good work that you guys have been doing over the years? Sure. The Well, the Searcy Institute is a research institute. The, uh, the name is of course it's you know comes from the goddess there in 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 the odyssey um, the one that turns men into pigs and i think the, i met uh, her part that gets forgotten <laughs> possibly um the part that gets forget forgotten though of course is that she then turns men or pigs back into men and she helps guide odysseus to avoid the sirens so to some extent that's kind of what we think of our role as being to, you know, help turn pigs into men and to avoid the sirens of, you know, just bad education and, and, you know, turning our backs on the inheritance and the tradition that's been passed on to us. Um, there are a lot of sirens trying to distract us from that uh, cultural inheritance. So, um, you know, part of our job is to, is to help preserve that or protect that and to honor it. The, Institute more formally, I guess, is a Center for Independent Research in Classical Education. And that means we are, you know, constantly looking back to the tradition and trying to develop, uh, try to understand it so that we can develop training and, and resources, curriculum, things like that for people that are uh, trying to educate in accordance with it. So that's awesome. I was first exposed to Cersei through a fantastic podcast that our audience would be well served to download as well. And so tell us all of the the wings of operation and all the ways that Cersei can make you a better human. Sure. So we have we have two kind of main units. Uh one of those is our is our training and consulting and training unit. And then the other one is our resources. And the resources include our podcasts include uh we have a press publishing books and then we have um, a magazine and uh, and then curriculum. Our lost tools of writing is our it's a rhetoric curriculum, according you know, in accordance with the tradition, Aristotle, Cicero, and others. And the uh, so there's a curriculum a curriculum unit as well. And those are all kind of working together to produce resources for people. And then the other unit is our consulting and training. And so we do consulting with schools. We do um, a lot of online training for mostly teachers. We have online classes for, you know, kind of junior high and high school students. Um, and we have our probably our two big flagship things. We have a, our national conference that takes place every July this year, this coming year. It's in Denver, Colorado, and our we uh, at the national conference we give away a, a, a prize called the um, Russell Kirk Paideia Prize for you know contributions to education, and this year our prize winner is Andrew Seely, um, Dr. Oh, Seeley wonderful! From, yeah, so from, from the Albertus Magnus Institute, uh, I know you weren't going to say that, but yeah, he's he's uh, he's one of our founding board members. And just a really amazing man. And and he guy, has also yeah. pioneered something called the Institute of Catholic Liberal Education, which, like Circe, educates educators. Is that fair to say? It is, yeah. We've 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 done a lot of work uh alongside of those guys and together with them at the ICLE folks. So 
yeah. Yeah. So he'll be our, our prize winner this year. Um, previously, previous prize winners have been, uh, Stratford Caldecott. You probably know him, um, or know, yeah, know his work and his reputation. Um, and well, now I the, my, the, all the names just fled from my mind, right? As I was going to start reciting a few of them, but Anthony Eslin, Eslin, right? Another one of our yeah, guys. Yep. Recently. Yeah. So, awesome. We're going to have a big presence at that conference. I hope. Right. Larissa. Oh yeah. The best, best and yeah. the biggest. Yeah. We'll be there. We'll Excellent. be there. Yeah. I, I got to grease the wheels so I can get my award one of these days. There you go. Yeah. Larissa's yeah, laughing. You, you got to unmute when you laugh, Larissa, because we we only people only. I hear know. Us, I like, children pitter patter yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. We have um, DC Schindler will be speaking at our conference this year, which is pretty exciting for us. We've been listening to him on on uh, different different shows that he's done and reading his books for a while now. So he's he's pretty. Yeah, I just finished. Did he write the Recovery of Wonder? Is that another Schindler? Might have been. I, I don't know. I don't recognize that name, but um, yeah, might have been. Uh, yeah, there was another Schindler too. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay, awesome. Uh, Cersei's doing great work. And where do people find Cersei before we start talking about ideas? Uh, yeah, CerseiInstitute.org, probably the easiest way. Go to the website, CerseiInstitute.org. Awesome. I guess I never really realized the double entendre of the. Uh, the acronym and the goddess until now, I guess I should have, I don't know how I missed that. That's brilliant. We get um, probably a, a one or two emails a year asking us why we named ourselves after a witch. Hey, you know, she's, she, I, I guess she helped uh, Odysseus stay off them rocks. Right. Yeah. yeah. I always think of that beautiful story um, in the Odyssey is like, you know, Odysseus, wants to hear it but he's got to tie himself to the mast because he knows he'll crash if he does and i've always thought of this as a beautiful analogy for a vow especially the vow of marriage uh you know if you don't tie yourself to something that is uh in in unbreakable you will crash and die so you have to you have to sort of bound yourself uh to this thing and that is that is the vow uh, if you just leave yourself to your own devices you you will crash on the rocks uh so that is beautiful yeah yeah it helps helps me in my marriage every day you know it's like it there's something just certain and tell death about it um so anyway, you are, you know, uh, you wrote and would probably call, well, I'll call you an expert on Plato and his cave. Um, why is that? What What is it about Plato's cave that fascinates you so much? Because I think this will be our first podcast talking about the cave proper, which is really exciting to me. Uh, it changed my life as a young man reading book seven, especially. But just... Give our audience a flavor of why you appreciate this work so much. Well, Plato, Plato, I fascinates me because of his his influence, uh, both directly and indirectly, on Western civilization um, through his works and then through his you know students and the the idea that he somehow 
is pushing us toward thinking rightly about creation, about the world we live in, without giving us the exact answers that we want from him. Um, I, something, something about that that fascinates me. So this kind of dialectical approach where, I, for example, I just read, I just read his dialogue, the cradleist last week or the past Tuesday and was discussing it with a group of uh, teachers and the first half of the dialogue, he's arguing with a man by the name of Hermogenes about, about language and Hermogenes is arguing that all language is based on um, what, what's the phrase they use? Uh, like we just have an agreement that the word mean this society culture has an agreement that the words mean this, but the words don't necessarily, the words only mean that because we agree to that. They are all going to mean that uh, yep. like a social construct and the, and then Socrates goes through and shows him how the words are actually connected to the nature of the thing that they're naming. Mm. But then in the second half of the dialogue, he's arguing with a guy named Cratylus, uh, from which the name of the dialogue comes. And Cratylus is arguing that the name is the nature of the thing. To know the name is to know the nature of the thing. Mm. And then Socrates argues against that. And and so, you know, at the end of the first half, you feel like he is going in that direction. Then by the end of the second half, he kind of takes it away from you. And so he doesn't tell you what the nature of language is in the end. He just tells you what it isn't. You don't have any answers, and yet somehow you have a better understanding of what language is and how it works from the dialogue. So, so there's something about Plato, just generally speaking, that um, that I love about him because of that, that he opens up so much space for contemplation and for thought the uh without without closing any doors by giving me answers that are too kind of too perfectly expressed you know um the cave itself though the cave the allegory of the cave itself in plato's republic is incredible i, I just generally speaking overall it's incredible because of the analogy it gives us for education and it just and it makes so much sense like you can read it today and feel like he's describing perfectly and exactly the world we live in. And yet he, you know, wrote it 2,400 years ago and was perfectly describing apparently his own world and the world he lived in. But there's something specific about, there's a question specifically that the Plato's cave has somehow put into my mind that I, I, I think about it constantly and I'm constantly trying to figure out the answer to this question. And he never addresses it. He just says in the, in the cave, you know, I don't know how, how much detail to go in for your listeners, but detail. Cave basically, we, we love it. Go love detail. Okay. So the cave basically starts out with this, these guys that are trapped in a cave, they're chained. They can't move. They can't even turn their heads and look at the, their neighbors. They're just forced to stare at this wall in front of them. And on the wall in front of them are shadows being cast by a fire from these uh, people carrying these statues. And the, sh the shadows are being cast by the statues from the fire behind them. But the people chained up can't see all that, that what's behind them. They can only see the shadows on the wall. And then they can hear noises that are echoing off the wall from the, the passersby. And that's the only world they know. So they see those shadows, they hear those echoes, and they think that's reality. Mm -hmm. And then somehow 
somebody comes in and rescues one of them, takes them, dra- drags them, compels them out of the cave. Um, they initially want it, but then as they start making the journey, it's painful. The, the, the sunlight outside is too bright. Their legs are weakened. It's hard, difficult for them to go up out of the cave. But once they get out of the cave, the real world, which for Plato would be the, the world of forms. But for the, in the allegory, they're seeing, you know, instead of a statue, instead of the shadow of a statue of a giraffe, they're now able to see the reflection of a giraffe in the water or the shadow cast by the sun of an actual giraffe rather than the statue of a giraffe. And then eventually as their eyes strengthen, they're able to see the giraffe itself and they're able to see eventually the sun itself that gives light and life to the giraffe, for example. That's so beautiful. The, the thing, the thing that drives me about that cave though, is how the first guy ever get out. Like every subsequent Bro, person that gets just that stop. escapes. Hang on. Stop. I was a savior. I was, oh my gosh, this is my, this is also my great question on the cave. And I was, I was almost going to interrupt you at that point in the story and ask this question. And it is so beautiful to me that you are asking the million dollar question. Cause I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think Bloom's translation has this weird thing where he says, somehow my bonds were loosened, right? That starts his upward ascent. And I'm always reading that. I'm like, what is the somehow? Like, that's the million dollar question. Socrates can't tell us what it is. So awesome. I'm so glad this is the discussion we're having. Go ahead. What is the somehow? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have ideas. I have theories. I have theses. But that's what I'm constantly being driven to because the, the... uh, here's the thing inside when you talk, when you're talking to Socrates, when you're encountering, when you're, when you're encountering Socrates talking to somebody else, that other person always has some sort of drive or ambition or zeal. They're always pursuing something. And it's almost always in his case, political power or, or um, rhetorical power over other people. And Socrates is always trying to, through his conversations and, tr- and trying to get them to pursue the truth itself, the ideas themselves, he's always trying to elevate their desires beyond these kind of worldly materialistic things, right? And the, and the thing is, because of that, what you see is most of Plato's dialogues have a Socrates who is encountering somebody that has a drive a zeal and an ambition and he's trying to redirect it towards something higher, some greater good, right? Some better, something better. You rarely encounter him having a conversation with somebody who's just not interested at all. Who's just a lump on a log, right? You just don't, or a bump on a log. You just, you don't encounter those people, but the cave is that those guys are happily just sitting there staring at the wall. And somehow something creates in them the desire to have their bonds loosed and get out. And that's the thing, like as educators, those are the kinds of students we get. We get somebody who has misdirected zeal or none at all. And Plato gives us plenty of examples for how to redirect misguided zeal, or at least how he tried. 
but we don't get very we don't get any examples at all hardly except this allegory of how do you inspire zeal but he never tells us how it gets inspired so yes i wonder this is my theory is that if you take if you take the story of the the chariot with the horses from the phaedrus where the soul is a chariot and the mind is the the charioteer and then one horse is the spirited part of man and the other is the appetitive part of man and you're trying to get those two things under control using the mind um that in that story the 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 charioteer encounters the forms but then crashes down to earth and forgets them but something in life some encounter he has with 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 the world causes a recollection of that original truth that he saw mm. and and then moves him towards the philosophical life so what i'm wondering is is do those guys in the cave sometimes see a shadow or hear an echo and the beauty of it as bad as it is as bad as an imitation it is does the beauty of that somehow spark love that then compels him out of the cave freeze drops the bonds so i th i think my theory right now is that it's beauty it's beauty oh, is somehow yeah okay so i'm gonna i'll give you i'll give you another pitch and i actually think these two are reconcilable theories but i love to hear your yeah. take uh i don't you're are you big on uh saint thomas aquinas at all i've heard of him yeah 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 <laughs> this guy um and uh, so he's he's got this very interesting remark. I think it's in De Veritate, but but he says I might be wrong, but he says it somewhere. I'm sure that uh, the oracle at Delphi, who tells Socrates that he is the wisest of men, that oracle could very well have been divinely inspired. This is Aquinas speaking, okay? Hmm. By by my God and your God, okay? The God, okay. And why is that important? Because Socrates is the wisest man, as you know, because of what he does not claim to know. And basically because of his uh, fancy word here, uh, apophasis or apophasis, depending on who you talk to. But this negative, uh, emptiness, epistemological, uh, self-induced emptiness or humility of some sort. Basically, he... He he knows that he does not know. That's why that's why the, the oracle says he's the wisest of men because everybody else thinks that they're wise because they think they know things. Socrates alone admits he does not know. So there's a there's an admitted vacancy in the source of his knowledge, right? And he's in that the wisest man in Athens because he knows he does not know. Uh, and in that way. I think Socrates is very, we should say, uh, preparatory to knowledge itself and truth itself coming into this world uh, via the incarnation. But he's not named in the Gospels, obviously, as a forerunner. There is another man who is named in the Gospels as a forerunner. That's St. John the Baptist, who is a voice crying out in the desert and similarly to Socrates admitting that he is not, who are you? Are you Elijah? No, I am not. Are you the Messiah? No, I am not. Are you the one who is to come? No, I am not. So 
John the Baptist mm-hmm. has this analogous threefold denial that really, and then he ultimately, you know, he leaps in joy in the womb, but then ultimately dies in this darkness of a prison cell, you know, go and ask him if he's the one who we're waiting for. It's like, you knew from the beginning, he was the one. Why are you asking? Why are you in this darkness? Because that's who John is, right? He's got an empty, empty, empty. I must decrease. He must increase. And John's via negativa uh, in word and deed, Aquinas says, prepares Jerusalem to receive her king. Okay, so John the Baptist is actually preparing the city of faith to receive truth. Socrates is preparing the city of reason. Socrates is preparing Athens to receive truth. You know, you could say, it's kind of cutesy to say it, but you could say that like, you know, what Athens and Jerusalem sort of converge into Rome, the city of faith and reason, or whatever that is, right? The city, the city of you know, the church, right? Christ. And so uh, Socrates in a similar way is the intellectual via negativa in word and deed in a way that's distinctly preparatory for something that will come uh, ultimately, right? You see, it's all, all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, but all intellectual work is really a footnote to this person, this man of Socrates that has this, I think really pregnantly hidden place in salvation history in a way that can't be mentioned. Socrates can't mention the name of the one who loosens his bonds, just like the gospels can't mention Socrates as a forerunner because it's a different city. Right. Mm -hmm. But they sort of meet in this darkness of unknowing that prepares the way for something infinitely more to, to it's like Socrates says, you know, as he's drinking the hemlock, right. Where I'm going, I don't know. <laughs> it could be yeah. could be better, could be worse, but I'm going somewhere and I'm okay with that because I've done the best I could. So could it be that uh and I and, and then we're gonna figure out how these both converge, your theory of the beauty that is the spark, and my theory that is the uh unnamed, unknown God. There's this movement of divine inspiration that can't be known or named that first frees one's bonds to lead him up to the beach to see that giraffe and ultimately that sun. So in the Republic, this just to, just to keep going with your, your, your thought there, um, the unnamed loosener, the, in the Republic, the ideal city, the, the most just city as Socrates can conceive of it, at least with that particular group of people he's chatting with, the, the 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 main law that's demanded of those people is that every man does his own work. No, there's no you cannot have two jobs because you cannot do two jobs well. So if you're a soldier guardian, then you you have to be only a soldier guardian. If you're also trying to be a shoemaker, you're going to do both of those jobs poorly, right? One one job, one one man, one job. Except the ruler of the city. The ruler of the city is the philosopher king. He's two-jobbed. Both he does the job of a philosopher and the job of a ruler. He's a philosopher and a king. And so the philosopher king has to take on this injustice in order to have 
a just city, to bring justice to the city. He himself has to bear an injustice to bring about a just city. And people smarter than I am have, have commented that that is a very distinct way of thinking about one other person who took on two roles, right? Man and God and, 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 you know, emptied himself. And then to bring justice what book is that right? in the Republic uh, where he's talking about, well, is it better to be, is it better to be, you know, unjust or just, and then just, and then everybody disagrees with you. And then Socrates says, well, even if he should be crucified, you know, and he literally says the word crucified, but huh. yeah. hold the truth alone. He's like, that's ideal. Right. And it's also yeah. very yeah. curious. Why is this guy uh, so so prior to the infamous infamous crucifixion, uh, mentioning this crucifixion, but in the truth, is the happiest place to be. Yeah, was that book four? You know what I'm talking about. I don't. I don't remember the exact quote, so I'm not. I'm not able to. Yeah, the book, I look that up. No. Um, okay, so connect this to the spark of beauty that is the spark of grace. Hmm. Um, yeah, good question. I mean, the, the, I mean, the easy answer, I think that just the most obvious one that would come to mind is of course that, that God is, God is beautiful. God is beauty. It, it, it's interesting that the, um, the church fathers will, the early church fathers will often in, in kind of a Greek philosophical way, refer to God as the good. Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa does this constantly, re, re, you know, regularly refers to God. He just calls him the good. Uh, the same way that, you know, Plato or Aristotle might, but he's, but he's clearly referring to the Christian God. Um, the, the good, of course, we tend to think of, you know, the true, the good, and the beautiful as three separate entities. And yet they're all... Uh, they all have to be united in a way that makes them one at some point, at some place, you know, kind of higher level up that, that we're looking at the same thing, whatever that thing is, we're looking at that same thing. And from one direction, um, you know, morally, we're looking at the good. And then, you know, aesthetically, we're looking at beauty and, you know, and then the truth. Um, the, uh, but then there's dialogues where like Socrates, for example, refers to beauty as the father of the good. So is there, is there something in there, right? Where, where, um, where, you know, Christ is the good and the father is beauty or whatever, you know, I don't know how the, how it all get pushed out theologically to, you know, connecting a theological system to a philosophical system and then seeing how they unite, but there's something of whatever is going on there. There's something of good and beauty in, in the Godhead, in, in the Trinity that, um, that would would be that that ultimate beauty that would be uh kind of exciting the soul to want more than just the shadows on the wall yeah yeah by the way i found it it's republic uh book two 362a and the branding iron in his eyes and finally after every extremity of suffering he will be crucified and so we'll learn his lesson that not to be but to seem just is what he ought to desire. 
So it's it's Plato, it's Socrates talk, talking to uh, Glaucon about, well, being just. Is it about just being, everybody sees you as just, everybody sees you as being the truth. It's like, no, if even if you're completely alone in that and everybody sees you as a criminal, but you're just, that's still happening. Oh, yeah. 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 That's good. Crazy stuff, is right? That, he uses the word crucified there, or is that somewhere else? Yeah. No, 362A. Book two. Yeah. Huh. I, by the way, what's the Cersei go-to Republic translation? A bloom. I, I'm using, I'm using, the, the edition I have in front of me right now is, um, not bloom it's groob groob mm -hmm. revised by reed but um mm -hmm. uh, yeah that typically we we suggest bloom yeah 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 ask. yeah awesome so um so book seven of the republic is sort of this program of the intellectual journey from the life of the shadows to the life on the beach and it's it's arduous, but it's also sparked through something that is wholly other, right? Call it divine inspiration, call it this spark of eternal beauty. And just practically, I mean, you educate educators. We talk about this with really it's a it's a recurrent theme on this podcast. But how do you spark wonder in a soul? It's what we're called to do as educators, right? To 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 be midwives of wonder. How do you get somebody to be interested in what's on the beach when you've got these shiny uh, devices in our hands? It's like, we're just living the Republic now, right? I mean, in a way that, in a way that would have probably surprised even Socrates, literally we have these reflections uh, right. glued, to, glued to our hands and probably coming to a more intimate carnal union soon, unfortunately. Um, that de demand hours and hours of our attention every day and prevent us from a literal life under the literal sun and so much more that that implies. How do you, how do you turn a student, especially today? Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a rule and then I'll tell you a story about a time that I try that I followed the rule and what happened um, in in David Hicks' book, Norms and Nobility, he's, he has this comment in there, which is an incredible book on education. It's a, a must read for classical education. Um, he, has a, he has a line in there toward the end of the book where he says, the mark of an ineffective teacher is to answer questions that have not been asked. And that mm -hmm. the role of the teacher is to provoke the question that needs to be answered rather than to just answer it. And I think probably what happens in most of education is that kids just go there and get told what to, what everything is and what to believe. And, um, their sense of wonder gets diminished, uh, gets crushed, destroyed, perhaps. I don't know. And so I, I want, I think one thing, one simple change we can do is to, um, to, to reignite wonder as it were, 
is to not answer questions that haven't been asked and to just spend our time provoking questions in them. And there was, there was a, there's one time I had a chance to do this. I, my family, my extended family is they're not, they're not really kind of ideas people. They're not, not much a reader, you know, not much for reading. Um, They're not much for any of that kind of stuff more, you know, just watching movies and, you know, playing on the screens. Um, and I was, I go down there, my family goes down to, to my extended family every year for Thanksgiving. And a few years ago, we went down there for Thanksgiving. Larissa was with us and she, we were, we were sitting around my, my at my mom's house. She's got a kind of a screened in pool patio area. And we were all just sitting out in this patio area, smoking pipes and drinking and, you know, it was just Thanksgiving weekend. And I asked my sister was there and I asked my sister, what is the good? I didn't ask it like that. You know, I, asked it, I asked it in a different way. Right. I was just like, yeah, you know, yeah, what, yeah. What, is, what makes human beings happy? What yeah. is the thing that makes human beings happy? And I think, how long do you think we sat there, Larissa? talking about that oh three hours yeah easily three hours yeah and and it was my sister was there the whole time uh my immediate family was there but my sister was there the whole time i have another sister who was who was there she was in and out she would come and sit for a while and she would actively participate in the conversation and then she would kind of check out for a little while go leave talk to people in the house but she was talking, she would go into the house and talk to them about what we were discussing. My mom came out. She would sit there for a while, actively participate in the conversation. Then she would go back inside the house and tell people about what we were discussing. And for three hours, my extended family that does not a lot more than just kind of watch television and, you know, talk about things that are happening, um, had this three hour long conversation about what is the good to, to the point where the next day they were coming to me the my they and my family members were coming to me and telling me what the neighbors answers were to the question like the next day they had carried the conversation out into the community and were asking their neighbors what wow. the neighbors thought the good was and then bringing that back uh, to the conversation you know continuing it the next day so it was it was fascinating and all i i just started out by asking the question you know and just kind of kept asking questions but um, and well, so, I, but so, I did uh, it without ever really like pushing an agenda, you know, just what do you think? Yeah. Does this work? Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, by the way, what is the good? Um, it's the other third of <laughs> the <laughs> transcendentals. <laughs> it's a third of the transcendentals. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, come on, give us more. Really? I mean, uh, what would we say? What is the good? Not that we have three hours. Yeah, we, right. say, we, say, we say good is the desirability of being. Hmm. And then what is that? <laughs> the desire, the, uh, uh, to have a being that is desirable? To that, be the well, kind of being that is desirable? All being is desirable by nature. If it's a transcendental, right? Everything else. Omnia yeah. est bonum. That's probably horrible Latin, but uh, 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 all is good, all is true. So the the good is the the object of the will to being. 
good is be good is being's object of the will. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, but but how does it work when you're talking about a being that's right next to you that's not? Name one. Doesn't isn't desiring it. Doesn't why would it be right next to me if I don't desire it? Uh, yeah, nothing. No, I mean, the, another being, another person, right? There's a person who's a being right next to me, and they're not, mm-hmm. they're not desiring it. But that's that's right back to the question, right? Well, how do you provoke wonder? Yeah, because that's what you're, that's what you're encountering right there is somebody who's lost that sense of wonder. Yeah, it's true. I think that's beautiful. And we were, we were just talking about this. Uh, we got a guy on the team, Brian Long, or uh, I don't know what he does oh, anymore. Yeah. Board member. Good dude. You know him, maybe. Yeah. Um, but he teaches uh, He teaches uh, junior high school, troubled youths, as they say. And and he inherited this just broken system and, you know, like dangerous mind style. And But he gets these kids in front and puts puts an image on a screen of michelangelo's pieta or caravaggio painting so let's him look at it and he's like okay write down 20 questions that this thing that this being evokes and at first it starts all giggly and stupid and then they start writing down really profound questions you know about reality itself and then um conversation ensues but that's education right i think there's Ultimately, and we know this in our human experience, but there's really two things that can spark wonder. And one of them is beauty, as you say. The other one is is catastrophe or tragedy, loss, existential loss, which every human, uh, by the grace of God, will experience. And, and that will be a moment of shock and hopefully awakening and possibly, you know, eternal tragedy, but who knows? Um, it's an occasion for one or the other, it seems, but it does get you out of your couch and your TV viewing maybe for, for just enough of a spark moment to, to turn a soul. Right. And so I think educators do well to spark wonder, at least through beauty, because that's much, um, that's, that's easier and more pleasant than, uh, sparking it through induced tragedy, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it is interesting. Um, just from, you know, Brian's story there, the, like just the number of movies that were made, uh, really kind of going back to the eighties and nineties, I guess. I don't know if you see them as much anymore, but where these, you know, where some teacher goes into a trouble, a school with troubled youths. Right. And, um, and then uses Shakespeare or, you know, some literature or art or whatever to, Kind of turn those people around, you know. Yeah, that that, that was a theme in the eighties, and that's right. How do I reach these kids? You know, that was, uh, yeah. And I think it's kind of a lost art. Um, my, I have a nephew. As uh, kind of a, it's cr- it was crazy to me to hear this report. I wasn't there, but my bunch of my family went to this sixth grade nephew's uh, holiday pageant in a public school. You know, and that's where they give the kids a little recorder flutes and they, you know, to, to sing their songs and whatever. And, you know, we've all been to one, you grin and bear it and you, you smile and you point at your cute kid and all that, take pictures and all that stuff. But at this one, my family tells me they get a sixth grader up there to introduce a song and he's reading this script. And he says, we are so proud 
to introduce this next song, which was written by a transgender composer. And then they play the song. And okay, not to not to get into the weeds on this subject, but you know, talk about an anti-education. Like mm. that was not so I mean, a kid's reading a script. And what's in the mind of that person who gave him that script or that system that gave him that script? Uh, there's something just so anti, you know, anti-wonderful about that whole thing at a, at a time when you could be introducing these kids to great music. And I'm not saying, I don't know if, if the music was great or not, you know, probably, probably just fine as far as sixth grade uh, holiday pageants can be, but, right. you know, talk about a time to introduce a kid to something uh, perennial and wonderful and celebrated and great throughout the ages. And you just push this stupid agenda of the day on a victim mind, you know, what an injustice to that youngster and to that class. Yeah. And, and, and what's shocking is that nobody like stood up and booed or you know, they, all the, all the parents in the crowd right. just smile and nod as if that's the thing of the day that we have to be supporting, you know, it could have been that it could have been. And this next song goes out to Vladimir Zelensky and we stand with Ukraine or name your thing of the day, but that's not education, right? right? That's not education, something else. Yeah. For something that's not, I mean, that we're going to be, the future is going to laugh at us for it. They're going to mock us for, making such a big deal out of it. Oh it's yeah. The most important thing in the world. And it's just, it's just another passing fad. I mean, right. Right. Hopefully. Hopefully, but yeah. you know, the passing fads, it's like Overton Overton's window seems to get uh, more and more pushed to one direction every day. So that what is, you know, what is acceptable now um, just wasn't anywhere near the realm of conversation five years ago. And that window is moving further and further in one direction in pretty scary ways. But I think the silver lining there is that the farther and the faster that it moves over to one side, the more people start to wake up and say, oh, this is just nuts. You know, and I think that's why places like AMI and Cersei are receiving a lot more attention and have a lot more demand than they can even deal with for what they're offering, because there's few places in the world that are offering at least a sane view on education, let alone uh, an authentic and holistic one. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's interesting too. Cause there's, there's like, um, there's a, an embracing of our, the cult, the tradition that's been handed on to us, right. This cultural inheritance, there's an embracing of it. Um, and a, and a, you know, teaching of it without even having to say anything um, without having to like demand that declare with us that it is good or the, there's a, there's a, there's a, I I don't know. Let me me see if I put it this way. There's a, there's a, there's a very different view of presenting something and let it letting it be what it is on its own terms, be as good as it is or as beautiful as it is, or as true as it is on its own terms. 
um, or or us having to kind of propagandize on its behalf and and moralize as it were that right. that I don't think you see having to happen within classical education within liberal arts the renewal liberal education renewal um it just it's allowed to just be what it is i mean obviously people have their you know particular teachers or or you know thought leaders or whatever in the in the renewal have their beloved works of art or their beloved authors or artists or musicians or whoever right and people will talk about it and um you know i there's a running joke you know that kind of runs around in circe circles that i hate aristotle and i love plato just because i love plato therefore i must hate aristotle i guess but anyways you know it's this weird oh, yeah. joke or whatever but yeah. but there's like in no way am i actually trying to propagandize on behalf of plato and against aristotle or vice versa or you don't have to you don't have they to just speak up on their own they, they just are what they are on their own terms you know that's right yes and also another another magnus podcast thread Aristotle is a Platonist. I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker so that people can slap <laughs> that. They can slap that over their Ukraine flag or their equal blue and yellow sign. And that, that'd be a good one, right? Larissa, we can, we can uh, recap. I put that bumper sticker on. Uh, Aristotle yeah, is a Platonist. Hashtag it. Okay. Um, no, that's so true. I know this and, teacher. Yeah. Good. Well, well, I know this teacher. She ahead. teaches at an inner city school. And she teaches kindergarten and she's got all these students that are, I mean, they're like, I can't remember the numbers, but it's like 90% of them are below the poverty line. 70% of them are like tech officially homeless according to government standards. And, um, and then she's teaching these kids and these kids, they don't know where they're getting their next meal. They don't know where they're getting their next jacket, your know, boots, uh, whatever, right? They don't, they don't, they often don't know where any of this stuff is coming. And they, and they're coming from, they're coming from lives where sometimes taking what you need is the only way to survive. Yes. So, so on the, on the kind of the outside looking in as you, as you first kind of get to know these kids, there's, they seem to be living by a different ethical code than the people teaching in this school, for example. Yep. Um, and so she teaches, she's got these kids in her class. These are talking about five and six year olds. She's reading them Aesop's fables. One of the fables she reads them is the story of Mercury and the Woodman. If you, if you remember the story, maybe not, or it's been a while, the Woodman goes out to the woods. His only livelihood is, is his axe. He's cutting down a tree. Axe goes flying out of his hand, lands in a pool, a deep pool. And he just realizes he's lost his livelihood and his family's going to starve. So he sits down on the ground, he starts weeping and he prays for salvation. Mercury comes down and asks him what happened. He explains. Mercury dives into the pool, comes back up, ho holds forth a, a completely golden axe and asks, is this your axe? And this is what the teacher, she stops right there and she says, what do you think he's going to say? She doesn't say, she doesn't ask him, she doesn't moralize in any way. He yeah. should tell the truth, right? She doesn't do any of that. She says, what do you think he's going to say? And the kids say, he's going to say yes. And then she continues the story. The woodman says, nope, that is not my axe. Mercury jumps back okay. into the pool, comes back up, holds forth a silver axe. What do you think he's going to say? And now the kids are like, oh, he's going to say, no, it's not. Because they they realize this guy's an honest woodman, right? So he's going to say the truth. He's going to say it's not his axe. So then she keeps reading the story. Uh, nope, that is not my axe. 
Mercury dives back into the pool in some versions. He drives back to the pool a third time, comes back up with a gem studded axe. And then she says, what do you think he's going to say this time? And it splits. The room splits and more students are pushing toward um, he's going to lie this time. Mm. And so she asked them, why do you think he's going to lie? And they say in their five and six year old way, what they say is something like this. Because nobody can be tempted that many times. Oh, wow. And, and stand up to it. Hmm. And, and then, you know, of course, at their right, you're like, if you're that teacher in that classroom, right? You get a little choking. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. And, then, and then she continues the story. He tells the truth. No, that's not my axe. Mercury dives back in the last time, comes up with a wooden axe. Yes, that's my axe. And then Mercury rewards him with all four axes. Mm. And... The woodman like goes back into town. Sounds like a TikTok video. Will you take this $10 or give it to double it and give it to somebody else, right? Over and over again. And when they say, yeah, double it, they give them everything. Anyway, sorry. I didn't want to Yeah, go, go ahead. So, so he goes into town and all these other people in the town find out about it. And these other men come out to the woods and they hide their axes under the bushes. And then they sit down and cry and ask for, <laughs> yeah. Mercury comes down, dives into the pool, comes up with an armful of golden axes and says, are these your axes? And she doesn't stop reading at this point. They just, the, 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 what the men all say, yes, those are our axes. And then she says that her students yelled out, interrupting her. Don't believe them. They're lying. Don't believe them. (laughs) Yeah. Mercury goes and bonks them all on the head, takes their axes away, and they lose everything. Um, but here's this, this – she tells this story in this way. She teaches the story in this way where she's provoking the question for them rather than answering it and discovering that they, that they do on the inside. They have that. They know ethically what the right answer is there. And they're just not – they're just not – able to, you know, live that out in their world or whatever, right? At five and six years old, but <clears throat> it's there. And they, they, and they instinctively know, innately know the code and the goodness of it. And that those other guys deserve to be bonked on the head for it, for violating it. That's so true. It's fascinating. It, it, well, it's a beautiful story. Not, uh, not only the, the fable, but the way that you explain the teacher delivering that fable. I think that is, I mean, I'm going to go do that with my kids tonight. That's awesome. And it does speak to bring it back to Plato, that the truth is not something that needs to be fabricated and assumed, but midwifed, right? Mm. That it's, it's sort of innately knowable and you, and you bring it about through wonder. You don't, you don't make it, you, you bring somebody to an encounter with it as an educator. And you're 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 not you're not the uh, the final cause. You're you're sort of the maybe the um, efficient cause, I guess you could say, of of this of this birthing process that is knowledge mm. and one's coming coming to knowledge. But the counterfeit that we see every day is just is just the opposite. You know, it's trying to make things acceptable that are innately repulsive. Um, yeah, that's anti-education, right? And then you get enough and they people have to do it. That's right. They have to do it the way they do. They have to tell you this is good. They have to tell you this is good. And they have to get enough people in the room who are just too 
morally flaccid to the, to the, and they have to, they're the ones nodding. And then you kind of look around and see everybody else nodding. And then you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll nod too. And that's, that's, I mean, man, the last five years, right. The last COVID, you know, the, the mask wearing the vaccines and all this stuff, you know, might have to bleep that out. Larissa will get canceled or something, but the, um, you know, just this herd mentality that you look around, you'd be like, wait, what, what, maybe I am crazy. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe it's me. And then so many people just, I don't want to rock the boat. So I'll go along with it. And then that becomes the norm that becomes the middle of the Overton window and then rinse and repeat, right? The anti-educators just keep going, keep pushing it until you're just, you just have the upside down world. And that's kind of where we are right now. But like I said, I think they've kind of pushed it too far, too fast to the point where people are like, whoa, pump the brakes. You know, let's let's maybe jump out of this Overton shift a little bit in a way that does spark an awakening. Are you guys yeah. seeing, um, you know, I mean, I was speaking for Magnus earlier, you know, we're getting a ton of influx and new interest and in, in students. And how about how about Cersei? I mean, I mean, are you are you seeing there's a real awakening? for this desire maybe for the first time in people for classical education? I think there's a, there are a lot of, a lot of new people coming. Yeah. Um, Who are those that, people? Like, like give us an example of the, the kind of people that are drawn to this thing for the first time. I don't, I don't know. Cause I think that I think in some cases it's people being frustrated with, the progressive education model. Yeah. And so they're just kind of leaving that and, and going into homeschooling or classical schooling or private schooling, whatever. And then, and then, um, you know, wanting more, wanting to understand classical education better as a result of that. I think in some cases it's kind of a, uh, in some folks, it's maybe a, a political reaction, like um, progressive politics are failing us. And conservative politics, therefore, must be the other the answer. And then seeing seeing kind of conservative politics and classical education having um, some overlap, and then and then being interested in classical education as a result of of that kind of a shift. Um, the I, I know that I know that when we contact schools, classical schools around the country and talk to them about, you know, what their greatest need is. One of the most common answers we hear is that they need teachers because their schools are growing fast enough that they don't have oh, yeah. classically educated, qualified teachers. So, um, you know, there's growth in the, I mean, in the schools themselves, not just, you know, people coming to Cersei, but in the classical yep. schools themselves are growing so fast and they just, they need teachers trained people who know and love classical education desperately. And then the Australians, I have no idea how the Australians got into all of this, but I mean, I don't know what they're reacting to progressive. Education oh yeah. Or politics oh, I'm seeing them on LinkedIn and everywhere. Yeah. They're there. Yeah. I mean, that's an yeah. example of they went, the enemy went too far too fast and you know, yeah, they knew what they were doing. They took their guns away a couple of years ago, right? And everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall. But it's like that frog getting thrown in a boiling water sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of frogs trying to jump out right now, which is good. Yeah, and you know, and, and their Mountain Dew doesn't have caffeine in it because they have a law against clear drinks being caffeinated. You know, I was not aware of that. Yeah, wow. 
crazy, wow. isn't it? Also, do you yeah. know that Kmart is actually like thriving in Australia still to this day? Wow. I had no idea. And it's like, it's like a kind of a higher end store too. Like maybe like our target, you know, but anyways, wow. it's a Next you're going to tell me they yeah. have blockbuster videos still going down there. <laughs> wow. Awesome. This has been, been awesome. Uh, Dr. Matt Bianco, by the way, show notes, correction earlier in the show, I talked about a book called the recovery of wonder. Uh, and I mistakenly said it might've been by Schindler, but it was actually by Schmitz, Kenneth Schmitz, David Schindler just died. God rest his soul. Yeah. And then the yeah. Schindler that you're giving this award to, who is this? I need to look him up. His son. My- it's David Schindler's son. David Schindler's son. Okay. That makes that makes all the sense in the world. So there we go. We correct our mistakes on the Magnus podcast. Larissa, anything you wanted to say? Oh, man. Um, well, thanks, Matt. Start with that. I, I have a question. I, we don't have to get into this, but in terms of teaching with um, text, you teach a lot of courses on text, specifically Plato. How, mm-hmm. what are some of the most the best ways of confronting a text that you do with your students in a way that does that, does produces wonder in them, obviously questions, but I don't know, how would you take a student, take your students through a text? So I talk about like older students with Plato. Sure. Cause if yeah. I'm reading like fairy tales, fables, Bible stories, if I'm reading something like that, I'm doing it the way that teacher did. Mm-hmm. Where I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to stop and ask the students, what do you think is going to happen next? Or what do yeah. you think this character is going to do? Because well, that, that gets them thinking without, you know, moralizing, as it were. Um, yeah. But if you're talking about older students with Plato or a novel or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I don't know if I can say this, but it seems like classical Christian schools are one of the biggest culprits in terms of a lack of wonder in high school. It seems like they do a good job with elementary school, but a lot of the high schools, they make you do book reports and regurgitate facts. Um, There's not actually a lot of, like, wonder should still exist in high school. Wonder isn't, wonder shouldn't stop ever. Even when you get to the truth, you should still be marveling at the good. Always. So, you know, in high school and beyond, Let's talk about that. I'm so sorry um, I tried to in the show early, Larissa, because that's a really good question. Sorry. No problem. Uh, How do you do it? Wonder in high school. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, the, the, the way I approach it is I just, I just, I'm taking a idea straight out of David Hicks, Norms and Nobility. In Norms of Nobility, David Hicks tells this story about a teacher who was trying to get his students to be, to have wonder and to be genuinely interested in Plato uh, or in, in ideas, in ideas. And he knew, well, Plato writes about ideas in a way that necessarily provokes wonder. So I'll just give them one of Plato's dialogues and it'll provoke wonder. That's what it does. And then he gave them the dialogue and he gave them the assignment to outline Plato's argument or Socrates' argument. And when they came back to class with their outlines, they were completely bored, not interested in the argument at all, not interested in the ideas, not interested in anything. They just analyzed the dialogue 
cut it up, killed it, and it brought no life to them, and they brought no life to it. So he reconsidered his approach, and then the next time he assigned the dialogue, he said, okay, I'm assigning them the Mino, the Meno, Meno, which is about virtue and whether it can be taught. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask my students. He went to his students and he said, what is virtue and can it be taught? Go home and ask your friends and family that question and then come back with their answers. And then they went home and then they came back and these kids had had a conversation about the idea of virtue and whether it can be taught with their parents, probably for the first time in their lives and with their whoever cousins and pastor and grandparents and whoever they were able to ask. And then they came back and then they discussed what is virtue. And then they discussed whether virtue can be taught using all of the answers that the kids brought together as kind of the fodder for their conversation. And then that led the kids to have a commitment to the conversation. They were now genuinely interested in how a person would answer that conversation, answer that those questions. Then he assigned them to read the Mino. And then they came back and they had a conversation about how does Plato answer this question through the characters involved, um, Socrates, Mino, and Anitas. And the kids were thoroughly engaged in the conversation, both the one about their parents' answers and the one about Plato's answers. So I try to do that now, right, is like, is like, Give them the give them a question that's related to the text we're going to read and discuss. And let them think about that question so they understand that it's an idea worth contemplating and that people have ideas about it. Then they read the text, whatever it is. You could be talking about, you know, what is marriage and then read Anna Karenina. You could talk about, you know, what is repentance and then read crime and punishment or whatever. Um, or you could read Mino and ask about what is virtue, whatever, whatever the text is, right? You give them this kind of question to help them, help them have sort of commitment to the idea itself and then let this text be a contribution to that idea. And, let, and then they're trying to discuss, they're trying, then, they're, then they're interested in discussing the text to figure out what its contribution is and what other contributions well it might make. That's really well said. I, I spent a good decade trying to cultivate wonder in high schoolers. And, and I think, you know, largely for students who didn't have any grounding in a, at an elementary level in the classics or great books or wonder itself. But I think there's a great opportunity for kids in high school. And I sort of take a more subversive approach because if there's one thing a teenager is, it's rebellious. It's naturally rebellious. Like the teenager realizes there's something desperately wrong with the world and I don't want to do it like this and I want to do it my own way. So if you can get in there early enough and just point out and sort of direct very subtly that natural rebellious streak, you win. You you know, you take a high school uh, you know, some some kid who's bright, tuned out, you know, rebellious high schooler say, school kind of sucks, huh? Right. Like, yeah, school, school sucks. Well, that's because you're a lot smarter than your teacher, right? Oh yeah, I am a lot smarter. And and really 9.9 times out of 10, he is a lot smarter than his teacher because uh, teachers, you know, largely, let's just say it as politely as we can. um, Most public school teachers are professional idiots. And, and I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to get everybody's institute in trouble by saying that, but really 
you know, there are those who have learned how to be a teacher, have gone to school for education, and there are those who have educations. And those are two very, very different things. Teaching credential programs are the ruin of the mind. Teaching jargon, like if you're listening to this and you're a principal and you hear somebody use the word scope and sequence, fire that person today, please, and do the world a great favor. Fire him, fire her. Okay. And so anyway, the high schooler knows this is just a really weird, broken system. He knows that there's a better way. But you say there is a better way. And and you you really have to leverage that natural rebellious streak in a way that is contramundum. It turns him against the world. That's where he wants to be anyway. And you say, well, here's here's some other rebellious thinkers, some other dangerous thinkers. Um, and you turn them on to people who have stood up against the zeitgeist in a way that he wants to now. And that's how you get somebody who's motivated for wonder. You can edit all of that out. It's too dangerous. I think, I think it's interesting because it kind of harkens back to the idea that we discussed earlier about, you know, Socrates taking somebody who's already has ambition or zeal or desire for something and then trying to like redirect it toward a higher good. Yep. That's kind of what you're doing, right? You're taking this kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah that's his, that's Socrates MO for sure. Yeah. That rebellion and kind of redirecting it towards. Yep. The good. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. Love you, man. This is great conversation. Um, and we want to be more involved with Cersei in the future. So can't wait to see you guys at the conference in July, right? To honor Dr. C. That'll be great. That's going to be exciting. Yeah. More info there, CerseiInstitute.org. And I don't know when this is going to air, but as a reminder, give us money and we will keep doing what we do best for your good and the good of preserving the great Western tradition. Two, uh, two heirs of which we have here today in Larissa and Matt Bianco. Um, thank you, Larissa, for setting this beautiful conversation up. Thank you, Dr. Matthew Bianco, for your time. And God bless your work. And we will follow it for sure. MagnusInstitute.org for more. Thanks, Matt. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit MagnusInstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.